Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. presents Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Lutner. Welcome, everyone, to Revolution today, and thank you for listening. And as usual, I am joined by my co-host, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Hello. John Caracella. Good morning. And Deb Caracella. Hello. And for the roundtable this month, I thought that we would do something a little bit different. Instead of one of us having chosen what topic we would be discussing uh, or pondering, as we often do, that I would uh, introduce a process that you fellow listeners can try at home as well, and I would encourage you to do this. And we're going to allow the universe to give us our topic and pass on whatever messages we need to be hearing at this moment. So we're going to use bibliomancy, which is a oracular or divination system using books. And the process we are going to follow is each of us have a book, we're going to randomly open the book, look to the left-hand side, find the fourth sentence down, and whatever that fourth sentence is, is going to be the message, the theme, the topic, the point of discussion that we and everyone listening needs to hear at this moment. And if you want to do this at home, you can follow that actual procedure, or you can Close your eyes, open the book, and open your eyes and wherever your eye falls, or you can place your finger down and then open your eyes and see what sentence your finger is on. But it's a really interesting way, I think, to ask a question, receive a message, receive guidance, um, especially if you don't work with other tools like Tarot or astrology or something. Pretty much everybody has books, and we can often be surprised at what can come from those books, even from a sentence. And I would encourage you to try this. So, having said that, are all of my co-hosts ready and prepared? Ready yes, yeah. to go. <clears throat> all right. So, I think that what we will do is we'll we'll honor the the balance of energies, and we'll go female, male, female, male. So, Mildred Lynn, would you be willing to start us off? Sure, I'd be happy to. All right. I re- I recently moved to Sebastopol, California, so my books are in storage. So I ran out into the garage and picked one up on body language. I opened it up. I went to the left-hand side of the page. My eyes quickly went down to the fourth sentence, and it says this, Establish immediate eye contact. Maintain periodic eye contact, but do not stare. 
So it's in the context of body language, appropriate body language. So if you just take that particular statement, how would you interpret that? What message do you feel that that has if, if that was what you needed to pass on to someone? For me, I've noticed over the last couple of weeks, and perhaps it's because I'm moving to a new area, when I meet people I don't know, even in a store or on the street, I find myself trying to catch their attention and look into their eyes. And when I look into their eyes, it's their being or their inner self that I want to connect to and that I should put it this way, that there's an opportunity to connect to. So that's what I take out of that, how important it is when you meet another human being on your path, even during the day when you're doing mundane things, to take the time to establish contact, human being to human being, and you can do this by eye contact. It's very easy. Now, I have no idea about the do not stare part. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps, in my enthusiasm to connect... I may be staring at people. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'll have to watch myself and report back. Well, it might be saying that if we dwell on something for too long or too hard, we'll always find what it is that we think we're looking for in it rather than accepting what it is by simply seeing it as it is and then moving on. And people get stuck in their stories, in drama, in upset, in emotion by dwelling on it and they keep looking at it rather than being able to just let it pass through so that they can move on from it. So, John, would you like to go next? Well, let's see. One, two, three, four. I'm used to the way I am. Hmm. I'm used to the way I am. I think this is a isn't isn't the the natural state of most of us that we're used to the way we are, and that comes through the through habit and uh, conditioning and. And and that that's what makes us comfortable. And it's okay. It's okay, I think, to be comfortable with the way you are, as long as it doesn't. As long as it's not the. As long as it's not something that you hold on to so tightly, that you can't allow change to move through you. You know, life is change. There's change, changes all around us. So uh, I think what I'd be sharing with people is to look at who you are. Look at how comfortable you are with who you are and ask, is it a comfort that you want to, that you feel is healthy or is it a comfort that is simply there because you're used to it? And you know, Aries is Aries is a time is a sign of change, it's a sign of action and, and dynamism, 
and it's springtime where things are blooming and shifting and changing and mixing. Um, so, you know, don't be afraid to mix it up a little bit. And if you're somebody who mixes it up a lot because that's who you are and you're comfortable with that, maybe you got to think about not doing it because that's also being comfortable with who you are, being used to the way you are. So those are my thoughts. And I think that it also speaks to what Mildred had because if you're used to the way you are, that's because you tend to stare at yourself too much and you don't look at yourself in different ways or look at yourself through other people's eyes. You know, how often are people uncomfortable when somebody says, oh, you know, you're really great at such and such. And people think, oh, well, you know, I I put on a good front or, you know, oh, you may think so, but I'm not really that good. But that's because they're used to seeing themselves in a certain way, but can't see how the other people are perceiving them, which can be positive. Mm -hmm. Because we tend to stare at ourselves and get used to what we're looking at rather than looking away or looking differently in order to not get stuck in that familiarity, that comfort zone that you were talking about. Yeah, and I think, you know, with, you know, your show is called Revolution, which is about change, either either dramatic or gentle, but it is about change. And embracing change and acknowledging that change requires something of us, even if it's just to be present for it and endure it sometimes. Um, and holding ourselves back away from change because we're used to the way we are isn't necessarily the best way to serve ourselves. So, Deb, would you like to go next? Sure. Just before he let himself slide into sleep, he thought he felt the very singing of the vacuum itself, not empty, but full of incredible potential, a ground on which the world was only lightly superimposed, from atoms to galaxies, it seemed as if it might all be swept away by a strong enough will. Well, I think probably the piece of this particular sentence that hits me the the most is the when it speaks of the incredible potential that is all around us in the in the vacuum itself. There's so much more to everyone than what we are aware, than what is on the surface. And as you guys were speaking just a little while ago, even within ourselves, sometimes there's so much more that that we're not used to seeing, that we don't take the time to look for. Um, Something that I've noticed when I'm out and about doing my mundane things when I stop and actually make eye contact with the person who's running the checkout, when I stop and make eye contact with the individual who has just handed me the bag or whatever, those few moments of making eye contact really take me outside of where I am right now. It seems that time stops and expands for a moment, and there's something that happens that isn't just okay, hello, casual little conversation. Yes, I found everything I'm looking for. Thank you very much. I go on my way. There's really a moment that is full of incredible potential. There's more there than I would have had the opportunity to uh, experience if I hadn't been open to it. 
Well, I think I just your description of it, Deb, for me um, was a powerful one. It really is true when you actually stop to be in the moment, how much there is in the moment. We have our little program that we run, which is, okay, I'm at the checkout. I'm supposed to take my credit card out and swipe it and get my bags and walk away. And as long as we're operating from that program, we're actually not in the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's a very sterile place to be, mm. right? Compared to what it's like when you're actually in the moment and there's a person there and they have an interesting tattoo or they have an interesting ring or they have an interesting name and you engage them and all of a sudden you're in the present moment and it's like, wow, this is a cool thing to be. This is a cool, cool place to be. The tenuousness of the reality we experience, which was uh, cited in the sentence, that it could just be blown away, it, that it rests on on this void that is so full of potential, and yet it is not, that the reality we experience really isn't so concrete as we perceive it to be, mm. was a piece that <clears throat> I connected when you told the story about, you know, being awake to the to the person in the checkout line. Because mm. the, the fantasy that we live is not the reality we are in. When I was listening to that, what came to me was a potential interpretation of the stare part of my little sentence, mm-hmm. or my big sentence, depending how profound people find it. <laughs> so the stare part, when I was listening to what you said, Deb, I noticed that when I established contact or I tried to establish contact, there was a split second where either the person there's a split second when the person recognizes and feels that they are being seen at a soul level. And the response to that is either to welcome that recognition or to become shy and bashful. Yes. But the step before that is always the recognition that they are being seen. Mm -hmm. And that's the opportunity. That's the seed. And more often than not, it's a, a smile greets you. Right. Like, I know that you have just looked at my soul. And thank, and it's a thank you. I feel seen. Right. I feel witnessed. And now we'll, we'll both go about our days, but we have that little bond there or that little knowing. Mm-hmm. That little and, tiny connection. Yeah, connection yes. point. And it's important, and I have no idea why it's so important, but I know it's very important for both of us. Right, which is which is one of the things that... I've always tried to be aware and to be very conscious of my interactions with people in in those those public spaces, particularly people who are um, there to serve you. Their job is there to to provide something for you. Um, waiters, service people, the attendants on the planes. I've always felt that it's part of my job is to actually make eye contact with them, to see them, not just accept the thing that they are doing for me and go on my merry way. <clears throat> so that, that the connection there is um, a very part, a very, a very vital part of why I'm there at that moment too. And I think it speaks to what John read, if, if we become too comfortable with who we perceive ourselves to be, we're missing out on a whole limitless possibility of potential that we could be 
because we keep ourselves very confined in that limited vision or perception that we hold on to or cling to. Uh, and it makes me think of, like on reality shows, even even when theoretically it's a whole bunch of real people brought together for something, they all fall into a particular label or stereotype. And so, you know, you have the villain and you have the geek and you have the this and you have the that. And so they're not allowed to be complex, layered people. They're simply one thing. And that's what they want us to perceive them, those people as. And this, what you read, Deb, says, if you and combine that with also Mildred's thing, if we take the time to look deeper, then we will see that there are unlimited layers of potential and possibility for who someone is and why someone may be crossing our path at any moment if we simply take the time to look and to see it. Mm. And Mildred's thing also made me think about uh, something that we talked about with my guest on the Amethyst Historical last Tuesday. And that was about how people interact now so much on the virtual level that we've almost forgotten how to have interpersonal interaction. And Mildred's starting us off seemed to reemphasize the importance and how much we miss by not having face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact with people versus always doing it via email or text message or whatever Facebook, whatever virtual or digital means we may use. And those aren't bad. It's just that they seem to have, the balance has gotten out of whack. <laughs> and I guess I guess there's no replacement for that human connection. That would be the other thing. It seems to be basic, intrinsic, like the trees that grow on the land. It's just part of what we are and who we are that cool. nourishes us somehow. Right. I mean, I, I can watch on the best high-definition television there is some travelogue show about a particular place, but that can't replace going there and actually experiencing what it's like to be in that place, to feel it under your feet, to breathe in the air there, to participate in the energy there. there there's nothing that can replace that personal interaction with people or with places or whatever. Mm. So now I shall read from mine. All right. And it says, Joy, sadness, fear, and anger are the primary colors of our quilt that covers us with the subtle artwork of love, guilt, and compassion. And I think that's a nice reiteration or compliment to the other things that have been read and been said here, because it, it reminds us that we're all a tapestry of emotions, characteristics, qualities, preferences. And if we stare too long, if you're looking at a quilt and you stare too long at one particular square in the quilt, you're missing out on all of the other context and all of the other artwork that's going on in that quilt. So if we stare at one aspect of a person, we miss out on all of the other range that that makes that person who they are. But, but if, we look, if we look deeply into the eyes of that person, we see the whole quilt. Right. 
and we see that each of us is a patchwork of many things rather than can be easily labeled or stereotyped or, or boxed in to one particular aspect or thing. And even with our emotions, if we remember that we have a range of emotions, sometimes we get stuck by staring at a particular emotion, you know, and how often do you hear somebody define themselves or describe themselves as, well, I suffer from depression or, you know, I tend, I'm, I'm an angry person, but again, they're not allowing for that unlimited potential that they hold of being because they've gotten too comfortable as only seeing themselves in one way. And I, I feel that that human contact of being really seen it's more foreign in people's lives than common. Yes. And uh, I've often tried to, like if I pass a homeless person, to not avert my eyes, but to try to at least look them in the eye so that they are seen and acknowledged as an actual human being mm -hmm. that is sitting or standing there rather than simply as, a piece of furniture or a post that I simply walk by and don't even look at or notice. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you everyone for participating in this slightly unorthodox process. <laughs> <our normal laughs> table. Hopefully it was enjoyable and hopefully everyone listening found it both enjoyable as well as was able to perhaps glean something they needed to hear from what each of our books had to offer and I thank Mildred and John and Deb for joining us today. Well, it's been a pleasure. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, Pisces. Have a great thank show. You. Thank you and stay tuned. We will be right back.
You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well in our changing world. Food is alive. It is a being. It is a sacred being. Food is not just our vital need. It is the web of life. Vandana Shiva Our body is a machine for living. It is organized for that. It is its nature. Let life go on in it, unhindered, and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it with remedies. Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace To realize our connection with all of life and the plant and animal kingdom and how we support and help each other in our process. I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Today, we will continue on with our thoughts of spring, and this is an important time for the liver, as we have discussed in the past. So, all of the suggestions in the food section here will be things that help the liver because they're foods that grow in the time of spring. Foods grow in certain times that nourish and honor our bodies in that season. The, the liver is in the time of spring, lungs is fall, and so on like that. So spring is here, buds are budding, blooms are blooming, it's a great time of year. Each season carries with it, as we have suggested, its deep message of health and well-being. And so it is that a new season begins, without as within. So how shall we hold it this time, and how shall we do it in harmony? We see that sprouts are coming up, and this should let us see that sprouts are for us as well. They are filled with all the life potential of this season, of this new life, which is what we're doing is generating new life again out of the compost, composted during winter. So alfalfa seeds are great to use. They um, make sure they are organic. And clover, radish, onions, these are all good for sprouts as well. You can sprout some beans too. Lentils, red beans, garbanzos, great beans to sprout. Greens are all around us, so we'll keep adding them into our smoothies and our steamed vegetables in the evening and lettuces so we can start having our salads with uh, all manner of seasonal vegetables, which would be beets and celery and carrots, snow peas, uh, and all peas are coming. I love them. Wonderful uh, chives and all the herbs that we can add in. Wonderful things that support the whole body in all of its processes, and especially the liver loves green. So I would like to share a salad that I make. Uh, When I bring it, people love it. They always request me to bring it. My family always wants me to bring it to the potlucks, and it's called massaged greens. So you take your chard or kale, collard greens work, cut the center strip out, 
you take olive oil and salt, you drizzle the olive oil, sprinkle the salt, and massage it into the greens. It breaks down the fibers in there. Let it sit in the refrigerator for a little bit while it does its work, softening. And then you take and cut it up into small pieces. I add finely diced red onion, roasted red peppers, some savoy cabbage. It kind of lightens up the color in there. And then I mix it all together. You add balsamic vinegar, more salt to taste if you like, and then feta cheese at the end and mix it all up. And it's just fabulous. Another uh, delicious thing uh, at this time of year is cilantro. It loves cool weather like early springtime, and it is a wonderful herb that helps the body detox heavy metals. That would also support the liver in its process at this time. So I like to put chopped cilantro on top of my salads. I add it to a lot of things, and I make a cilantro pesto, which is a cilantro lime pesto, which is really delicious. And you just make it like pesto, but you add a, a less Parmesan and less garlic so it doesn't overpower the flavor of the cilantro. Add a little lime, blend it up. And then once you have it in your dish where you're going to store it, cover it with olive oil enough so that none of the pesto is showing and it, and it keeps it from oxidizing. Have fun. Be creative. It's, it's wonderful. I made a tarragon pesto one time that was to live for, as they would like to say. Just fabulous. So have fun. That's what it's all about, really. Now I would like to turn to a bit of a heavier side, perhaps, or exploring some deeper truths behind food and what we see out in the world today so that we can really know how to take care of our bodies and what we need to do and what we need to be careful of and and really how to look carefully in the world at large because there's a lot of things to be aware out there in the world because there's a lot of tricks and traps and a lot of veils that hide things. And if we're not aware of it, we get tricked into doing something that if we really knew about, we wouldn't participate. So we really have to be aware and, and careful out there in the world because There's lots of things going on in the world that we need to be aware of. And we need to start connecting some of the dots to really look and see. Like Monsanto and the GMO foods, we must learn about them. They're dangerous. They're killing bees. They destroy the soil, human organs. They're bad on the animals. It's a very serious situation. So we have to learn how to, about what is, real food and good food and what isn't, and to not support that, which is life-threatening and and life-destroying. So that's why this information is really important. And we have to learn to choose wisely out in the world and really read our labels and check on corporations and see who's supporting who. And it's time that we really learn to live in gratitude with compassion for ourselves, the earth, and each other. And so it is in this way that the new dream takes over as the old crumbles to the ground, for that which is not mutually beneficial shall perish. These are choices that we are all making at this time. What's yours? Will we make it? Life always survives, with or without us. These are some serious times requiring serious thought, deep looking, and wise action from an informed position. There's so much information out there available to us 
that if we're not using it, we're really putting all of ourselves in harm's way. It's important to be aware of what's happening out there. We have to remember that we have the power and it's time to leave the victim mentality behind and be proactive. It really feels good. So my recommendation for this month would be to check out naturalnews.com and Mercola, that's M-E-R-C-O-L-A.com. These are both really great alternative news sources for information about GMOs, the well-beings of our bodies and minds. Uh, Dr. Mercola is a, is a doctor, very alternative, well-informed doctor, and Natural News is a alternative news source as well. And I have a couple of books to recommend that go along with what we were talking about. One is called The Holographic Canvas by Sonia Barrett. It's a wonderful view of the matrix from an awakened perspective. Someone who looks and tells us about what's going on from her perspective. It's very interesting and and worth reading, very enlightening. Another book along that line is called The Matrix Revealed and Escape from the Matrix by John Rappaport. Because it's really time to take a look at our world and see what's really going on. And we're going to find out that it's not really what we thought it was. And it's really important that we see that it's not what we thought it was. So it might be scary at first to look and to really see that things aren't what we want them to be, but it's a must. It's a must. And we must learn to look within ourselves and see the dysfunctions that we hold there and the separations that we hold and heal those so that we can come together in our common humanity and return the world to its truth. In regards to uh, looking within and doing the work within, when we do that, we get into our interior toxicity. And certainly it is the liver that clears the toxins out of the body. So by supporting the liver to do its cleanse, it can also help the emotions release. But it doesn't mean that you don't have to do your work. It doesn't mean that you let that do that. You know, you also have to do the work. So again, those recommendations for this month was naturalnews.com, mercola.com, and the books are The Holographic Canvas by Sonia Barrett and The Matrix Revealed and Exit from the Matrix by John Rappaport. So that's our chat for today. And remember, it's only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream. Thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments, or consultations, please contact me at Linda at Prestia.com. Thank you and blessings to all. Blessings to all. Have a great rest of the day.
At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us. Host a show or be a guest or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable change makers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. Conjurer and root worker Conjurman Ali. Conjurman Ali is known in the United States as one of the esteemed members of the Association of Independent Readers and Root Workers, and he is known internationally as a geomancer, astrologer, and practitioner of jinn magic. Raised in a spiritual and magical path, he dedicates his time to teaching students, helping clients, and writing about the traditions that are dear to him. His books on St. Cyprian and Santissima Muerte and his essays on hoodoo are widely recognized as authoritative texts on the subject. Additionally, he is a high priest in the Afro-Brazilian tradition of Quimbanda and hopes to bring wider attention to some of the more esoteric and little-known magical practices of the Middle East and Africa. You can find out more about Conjurman Ali and his work by visiting his website at www.conjurmanali.com. So please join me in welcoming this month's revolutionary guest, Conjurman Ali. And welcome to the show, Conjurman Ali. Thank you so much for being willing to join me and share your wisdom and things that you have to offer and teach to the people listening today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. So I wanted to maybe just start by hearing a little bit of your background, because I know that you come from a slightly different culture than perhaps what a lot of people listening might be familiar with. And you also came into the work that you do very early on because it was passed down or transmitted to you from your family. So can we hear a little bit of that background and also how that transmission or that tradition works in terms of passing it to you? 
Absolutely. Um, and, you know, background questions are always good to start off with. So we know where I'm coming from and what I kind of bring. I work in three very different traditions. Um, the very first tradition that I work in and the one that I'm most known for here in the United States is the hoodoo tradition. This is an African-American form of uh, folk magic and spiritual practice that I was taught at a very young age from my teacher. Around nine or ten years old is when she adopted me into the tradition and taught me as the heir of her practice. Now, she ran a professional practice of offering spiritual services to clients that involved readings, it involved healing work, and it involved uh, magical consultations and magical work that she did for clients. And she was the um, community elder, and I, her apprentice, though we didn't phrase it in that, those terms. And I studied under her for a long time, and I inherited her practice. I became a professional with her much earlier on, but when she passed away in 2005, I inherited the full of her practice. So I've been working for quite some time, um, over a decade or so, in the, in the practice of a professional root worker. Um, and as a professional reader, uh, much longer than that, under her guidance. The second tradition that I work with is the Arabic, Near Eastern, North African practice um, known as Ruhaniya, which is basically an Arabic word that means spirit work. And this is the tradition involved with the jinn. And this I was raised in. This practice is something that was passed on to me from my uh, great-grandfather, who was a blind sage, and who, when he died, became a folk saint in the region. And I was trained, and it's a very unusual upbringing, something straight out of uh, a story more than real life. If I ever write an autobiography, or if anyone ever writes a biography, it would read like fiction, I tell you. Um, because um, I spent my early years, whether I was you know, six years old, studying things like geomancy, how to interpret dreams, um, what herb combinations will uh, bring and elicit a favorable response from the jinn and what will drive them out of the house. These are things that I trained in, and I spent many, many years of very rigorous training. Um, it uh, requires a great deal of memorization, a great deal of practice studying that. And I practice now as a jinn conjurer, a geomancer um, for the Middle Eastern and North African world, and I'm more known for that particular work um, outside the United States. And then the third tradition that I work with is known as Kimbanda, and this is an Afro-Brazilian tradition that I have initiated in under the tutelage of Nikolai de Matos Frisvold. And this is actually a much more recent tradition that I work with. I picked this up in the past five years, drawn to the spirits of the Afro-Brazilian uh, Eshu and Pombojira. I was uh, moved to initiate in that tradition, and so now I am a high priest in that tradition as well. So I work three very different paths. Um, I do keep them separate, but they all feature very prominently in the works that I do, as well as in my personal spirituality. Just a brief bio of a very complicated <laughs> background. 
And uh, so one of the things you mentioned is geomancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that uh, I think that you also say that you utilize astrological geomancy. Mm-hmm. Um, can you maybe explain a bit of what geomancy is? I don't know that that's something that's overly familiar to people in the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, geomancy is a form of divination that revolves around making dots in the earth, sand, uh, with pen and paper, whatever means you use, the tradition it was done on the earth, hence the word geo from the Greek. And you create a random set of dots that form figures. These four figures are then combined and recombined to create even more. And this unfolds into a chart that is read. There are two charts. One is known as the shield chart which is generally used to give really quick yes or no answers, uh, past, present, future answers. And then the other is called the house chart, which is where, as you mentioned, astrology comes in, or astrological geomancy. And this is a little bit more in-depth. It'll focus, just like astrology, on the different houses and the different aspects of our lives. Um, geomancy has risen in popularity in more recent years thanks to the work of John Michael Greer who published a book on it and so a lot of Western practitioners especially in the uh, ceremonial magic tradition the Golden Dawn are reconstructing the long legacy of geomancy which was very popular during the Renaissance The practice that I uh, employ is geomancy, but it's an older version of geomancy known as Khat al-Ramal, which is just Arabic for lines in the sand. And this is where geomancy comes from. It was a North African Near Eastern practice that was then adopted during the Renaissance and the early medieval era into European practice. So while I use the term geomancy, in actuality it's a uh, two branches of a wider family. Um, geomancy referring really to the Western practice, when Hatal Rama referring to the Middle Eastern practice, the older Middle Eastern practice, or the original practice. Both are fantastic. There are some slight differences between them, and I practice the Hatal Rama branch. But throughout the show, I'll refer to it uh, as geomancy just for the sake of simplicity. And in, in terms of differences, there's also kind of a different approach or a different use or expectation between astrology and perhaps geomancy in the Near East in the Arabic form versus mm-hmm. Western astrology. Can you talk about some of the differences there? Because some people may come into a reading if they've had, say, a Western astrological reading mm-hmm. and find it a bit different the information or the approach that you might be taking with it. Absolutely, and there are differences. And I would say that um, the major differences are somewhat political and historical. One of the things that uh, Western astrology um, has done is it involved a level of psychoanalysis and uh, personality interpretation that has emerged with leading theories in psychoanalysis, Jungian psychoanalysis. And so there's a lot of that depth of uh, looking at the human psyche that Western astrology has adopted. Um, There are also differences in emphasis, whereas Arabic astrology still carries on a much more medieval tradition of being focused on telling the future. 
it is somewhat fatalistic at times, though I personally don't interpret our charts in a fatalistic manner or predetermined manner. I see them more as potentialities, as the stars um, uh, impel or influence, but they don't compel. But in its traditional form, most practitioners are actually a little bit more fatalistic. They see things in predetermined fashion, and it is very much focused on predicting the future. There is a character analysis in it, but it's very small. It's focused on only one aspect. This is the chat, and often done for when a child is born. This child's character is in this way. They will have this type of personality, and then it will focus. They will be this wealthy. They will get married at this age. They may have a divorce. They may not have a divorce. They will have this many children, and so on and so forth. So it's about prediction, and there are various branches that are practiced. And that's the other difference, so that one focus on psychology versus focus on prediction. The second difference, I would say, is uh, the various branches. Um, natal astrology is really preeminent. It is the big form of astrology in the Western astrological tradition. But in the Arabic tradition, there's a variety of different astrological practices from uh, the natal practice of predicting the future for an individual, horary readings, which are about yes or no answers from the astrological chart, um, and then there are mundane astrological readings, which is predictions for countries or the world, so a uh, larger form of, of uh, astrology done on a wider scale. Electional astrology is selecting the right time based on uh, the, config the configurations of the stars, and so on and so forth. Now, these practices have started to reemerge in more uh, modern times in the Western world as there's been a resurgence of interest in traditional and Renaissance astrology. Now, I would say that traditional and Renaissance astrology that's being practiced and reconstructed and re-emerging in the Western astrological tradition is very similar to the medieval and the Arabic practices that I undertake. So that's the second difference. The third difference is the way we read charts. Um, there are certain things that are very important. Um, solar returns, for example, are very big for people who read uh, natal charts for individuals. Like what's your solar return, Saturn return? things along those lines. And it's very planet-focused as well as a heavy focus on the zodiac. In fact, the average horoscope is very zodiacal. When we read about a horoscope, it's often Taurus expect this, Leo expect that, Aquarius expect that. In the Arabic tradition, um, there are other techniques of reading the chart, progression, fabria, uh, the Arabic part, or the Arabic lots, depending on how you call them, um, the time laws. These are used in prediction uh, very clearly. And so those are some of the methods that are emphasized more. And in regards to a focus, you will find that in medieval and Arabic astrology, the planets and the houses are very, very important. Um, and so there's a little bit more of a balance with the houses and the planets and the zodiac. And you won't find as much uh, emphasis on, well, you're a, a Scorpio, so this means this. Much more focused on, will you have this in the seventh house and it aspects in this way. And those would be the major differences that I would say between 
Arabic astrology, or medieval astrology, and the astrology as it's practiced. The, if a person were to go to a Western practitioner of astrology or a modern astrologer, they would recognize similar methods when they came to the Arabic astrology. Not much of a difference in that regard. It's more similar than, for example, Vedic astrology is, which can be very different. Um, so there's still enough similarity that you can recognize it, that it's familiar, but you'll recognize it as different also. So it's related, a cousin of sorts or a sibling, more than identical practices. And I think um, some of that more predictive nature is also why in other parts of the world you tend to find people far more interested in, in going to get astrology readings about everything versus, say, a lot of times here people tend to go more towards, say, a tarot reading right. or something like that. Absolutely correct. And it's, a, it's really a historical fact. Um, in the Western world, especially in England and, and various parts of Europe, um, anti-fortune-telling laws emerged. And a lot of the divination practices that were in use, astrology especially, had to adopt. Now, it's not to say that the psychological aspect of astrology is nothing more than a, a, you know, a way of circumventing the law. Not at all. It's very deep and powerful, meaningful, and emerged with uh, the scientific development. Astrology has always had a very close relationship with science um, in one way, shape, or another. And it is considered the science of all the kind of divination practices. Um, and so the emergence of psychology also correlated very clearly with the fact that fortune telling was very much cracked down. And there was an emphasis on not doing it. Cardomancers managed to still do it. People who read the tarot cards, or people who read playing cards, or people who read Lenormand. Um, but they also adopted certain aspects of, and we'll know this is more of, of depth psychology. Whereas those same laws didn't have an impact in the rest of the world. So fortune-telling, for example, um, in Chinese astrology is very, very acceptable um, and very common, same in the Middle East, um, as well as in India. So I think there is a historical element to why fortune-telling in Western astrology or the telling of the future, if you will, of fortune-telling is uh, a bit of a loaded word, the telling of the future um, kind of declined in astrology. It is picking back up again. For example, horror astrology, I would say, since the 80s has really reemerged in Western astrological practice. And horror astrology is a purely predictive form of astrology. Uh, there is no uh, personality analysis. It's all yes or no questions. Will I get that job? Will I get married? Will he or she be my lover? Um, you know, will I publish that book? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it is re-emerging now, but you're right. People who are looking for predictions now tend to favor tarot reading. People who want to know about themselves tend to go to astrologers. But I do see that shifting, and we may within our lifetime see it where astrology regains its eminence as a predictive divination tool. Um, and I believe one other aspect that perhaps is not either not utilized mm -hmm. or has kind of been shied away from, especially in, in Western approach, is the idea of prescription. Yes, yes. Um, and can you speak a little bit about how prescription plays a big part, especially in other parts of the world, in the way that astrology is used and or, or the other tools and what it indicates? 
Absolutely, yeah. Um, prescription is a very, very important part. And I argue that prescription is one of the aspects of um, both geomancy and astrology, the Middle Eastern arts that migrated to Europe, they got lost um, and didn't become as popular. The, the diagnosis aspect of divination and the predictive aspect of divination was picked up in the Renaissance world, as was the prescriptive. The prescriptive fell away quickest, followed by the predictive element. The prescriptive element is, what do you do once you've done the reading? Once you've had the consultation, once you've found out what the fates have in store for you, whether you're using geomancy or you're using uh, astrology, there is a prescriptive element. Now, some of this is tied to medical practice, and that's why there is also a hesitance towards um, using prescriptive, is that the, these forms of divinations have a holistic approach to healing. So there may be certain recommendations, like um, you should avoid citrus fruits for a month, right? And that's very different from saying, oh, you know, you need to be lighting white candles and praying to your holy guardian angel. But both of them are seen within the same type of holistic type of healing, even though to our Western eyes, they're very different. One is like a spiritual practice, and the other one is dietary. How could they have anything to do with one another? But in the traditional practice of Arabic astrology, they do go hand in hand with one another. And so there are prescriptions, and it may come up in a person's chart that, you know what, they should be avoiding citrus fruits for a period of time, or they need to be wearing a certain color for a period of time, um, that they need to be offering up certain prayers or meditations or mantras over a period of time uh, to help reconfigure things spiritually. And sometimes they're much more overtly magical. You need to create a talisman, an astrological talisman of sorts, and carry with you in order to fix those forces within your life. So as much as um, it is predictive, there's still an element of agency and free will there, the ability to change the future, the ability to alter the forces that are in your life or set them right. Both of those are very important. Um, yeah, that, that element is very important, both geomancy and astrology. And as I practice it today, they seamlessly go into one another. Now, I will say that the folk magic practices of the Western world, uh, whether there's the um, traditions of the, the British witch, or it's hoodoo, the African-American practice, still carry that prescriptive element. It seems that it's just the divination aspect that doesn't carry prescription, but magic as a form of prescription still exists. And you mentioned that one of the things that you're fairly well known for at this point is in the hoodoo world, um, with hoodoo being a, mm -hmm. a, a magical tradition. Um, is, can you maybe speak to, so is 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 that prescriptive element, especially when, I mean, sure, somebody can eat or not eat certain foods, wear a right. certain color, but when it gets into prescriptions that are more magically based, mm -hmm. is that something that people you think can learn to do on their own or is that something that you think they should always go to someone else to be told what to do and is it more effective if somebody is doing what they were told versus say having a an experienced person like you doing it for them because a lot of times people <laughs> will come hoping that somebody else will actually do it for them <laughs> um, and then get charged lots of money 
that's kind of the problem I have with a lot of clients I've seen. Right. Uh, you know, oh, they've asked me to pay $8,000 to get my husband oh, to divorce me. And you're like, well, you're paying $8,000 basically for them to say a few things, buy some incense and light a candle. I don't know that that's $8,000 in value. Yeah. Um, but can you, you can you talk about the magical prescriptions and the, the ability for people to do that for themselves and also when to know the right time to go to someone else versus just perhaps trying to do it for themselves. Right. That's a fantastic question. And it really speaks to the tradition of voodoo. Um, first, $8,000 is far too expensive to be paying for anything um, of that sort. But um, one of the things, that, so that's just a caveat right there. This is really comes down to the person themselves and how comfortable they feel in the situation. Hoodoo, as it exists, evolved out of African-American experience, an experience of people born in slavery, born in subjugation, um, growing up in a society that is uh, racially divided um, and ultimately being in a disadvantage. So it's all about empowerment. It's all about righting that wrong, fixing that imbalance. So there is an absolute element of you can learn this for yourself. Um, you don't always have to go to an expert or a professional. Um, more often than not, hoodoo is transmitted in two forms, in a family form, which can take the manifestation of simply family traditions. And in that form, it's not often called hoodoo except by anthropologists or people who are studying it academically. Ah, what you're doing is hoodoo. But you ask that person, they go, no, this is just what my grandma told me when, you know, money looks bad, she told me to burn some cinnamon, right? Um, or, you know, when the New Year's comes around to burn onion, red onion skins. Or when the holidays are here to uh, lay out this, this herb or to keep basil in the uh, kitchen. And these are just things that they know to do that's passed down in the family. And that's specific because they know they can do it. Oh, money's bad. Brahma told me that I, I should do this and not that. And then there's times when you need an expert to step in because you feel out of your own depth. Either you're too invested in the situation and you cannot speak clearly, you don't know what to do, you feel confused, or you're up against a force that is far bigger than you are. Sometimes this may involve an enemy or someone who is actively working against you, and you don't feel like you have the ability to match that. Or someone has, they themselves, gone to a professional to work against you. And so you need your own ally on your end. And the way I describe this to people is, it's just like health. If you have a headache, you know what to do. Everyone knows what to do. But if you're having unusual and strange body pains over a period of months, then you know it's time to go see a doctor. That's the same thing. There's certain things that you know, and there's certain things that you can learn, certain things that you can pick up. Absolutely. There's a great deal of empowerment in voodoo, and there's a great deal of empowerment in folk magic in general. Things that you can do on your own, things that you have learned um, from family, and things that you can learn from the outside, whether it's by taking a book or learning from an elder, things that were, you can use in your everyday life. And there are other times and circumstances where you need to go to that professional. Now, that may require the professional just to give you advice, right? This is what you can do. You can do it on your own. Other times, it may involve them getting involved directly, taking charge of the case. Again, it's really a personal matter. And there are certain questions you have to ask yourself. Can I handle the situation? Yes or no. 
Um, would I feel better if I just kind of hand this over to someone who knows what they're doing? And how close am I to the situation? I find, for example, that matters of divorce and marriage, sometimes it's easier to hand it over to the professional because of the level of emotions that are involved. But whereas it comes to something like getting a job, it may be easier to do the work yourself. And also how comfortable you are. Some people are not comfortable lighting candles in their home, laying down powders, or doing certain magical things, just not comfortable with it. They are comfortable having a professional do it. Both are perfectly valuable. My own approach as a professional is to actually assume a sense of empowerment. I try to teach, because I am a teacher first and foremost. So I try to teach my clients how to do this work themselves, first and foremost, and only as a last resort will I take on the case of sort of bringing in the big guns um, as if you so need it, but first and foremost, teaching people how to do this work themselves. Well, and that makes me think of one other question I often ask people when I'm suggesting things that they might do, is I also say, will you have the discipline to do this? <laughs> So if I'm going to tell you how to do something, but it involves, you know, lighting candles and doing something over the course of seven days mm-hmm. or over the course of seven Sundays, which is, in a sense, a long period of time, um, you know, are they going to have the discipline to actually do that? They can't come back and say, well, I tried it, but it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, did you light this candle every day? And did you do this every day? And like, well, no, I did it for the first three days, but then I was busy and I had to get to work early and I didn't do it on that day. And you're like, well. <laughs> yep, that's so true. And this is something that I think people who work with clients are very familiar with and would recognize. Um, and, you know, when you talk about calling in the big guns, mm-hmm. I know um, a- another big part of the work that you do is in the spirit realm and the ancestor realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do, and, and this is something that hopefully you can explain a bit more because I saw that you call it the practice of grimoire conjuring. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also work in realms like necromancy and Goetia. I, I'm sure necromancy ha- conjures all sorts of images for, yes, for people and misperceptions. Um, can you maybe just take us on a little guided tour of the spirit realm and what it's like to work there and the different kinds of entities and spirits that you work with? Absolutely. I'm more than happy to. I'll be the psychopomp on this journey, Yes, if I, if I can borrow that term. Um, yes, I do work in those realms, and I use those terms for lack of better English terms, I should say. So, for example, the more conjuring tradition. Well, yes, I work with certain Western grimoires. I do not consider myself, for example, a ceremonial magician. I don't work in the Golden Dawn tradition. Um, I don't work in what's familiar to a lot of Western practices. I work um, in grimoires that are often written Arabic um, and involve things like magic squares that have Persian writing, Arabic writing, Hebrew writing. so the, I use these terms, same thing with necromancy. The word necromancy conjures up all sorts of images, but it's very different when it comes down to it. What I would describe my work ultimately is as a person who walks between two worlds, who is a mediator between this world and the world of the dead and the world of spirits, because there are more spirits than just the spirits of the dead. And that involves being a medium, it involves uh, giving voice to those spirits, giving them power in their own world, so they can speak to their descendants, this would be ancestral work, so that they can guide their descendants, so that they can offer wisdom from that world. And it also involves invoking power, calling upon them to be our allies, to the 
assist in magical working. Now, there are very different ways of working. In the Hoodoo tradition, this involves um, uh, hiring spirits, so to speak, and you do this by purchasing graveyard dirt that's then included in powders and whatnot. These are friendly spirits or allied spirits that you can call upon in your work. There's also ancestral work, setting up an ancestor altar or space that the ancestors are venerated and remember, something that comes very deeply out of the spiritualist tradition in Hoodoo and has connections to the Congo roots of Hoodoo itself. And then the Near Eastern and Arabic traditions, working with the realm of the jinn and uh, spirits of the dead, is a very common form of practice. The magician, the mage, or the magus is meant to be a communicator, a facilitator, and a person who really enters into these realms descends into the underworld, so to speak, and then brings the underworld back with them. They're able to communicate with spirits of the dead that are um, uh, friendly, that are dubbed off of guidance and wisdom and power. They're able to connect with the realm of spirits that are elemental, be they jinn or otherwise, and call them into magical practice. The way this manifests is very... Uh, directed towards mediumship, towards developing an ability to hear them first and foremost. The ability to listen is the first qualifying or, or virtue or characteristic of this practice. Without that ability, you're missing out. And I think this is one of the big differences in what, when I use the term necromancy versus the kind of images of necromancy conjured up, uh, pun in, not intended, um, in the Western magical tradition, which is generally necromancy as this idea of you're sitting in a circle and you summon up a sort of ghost. Um, whereas in the traditions that I work with, it's much more about communion. It's about first being able to hear that spirit, developing a connection, a relationship with them. Um, and not all spirits are welcome, I should be clear. As, as great as this sounds and as not all spirits are welcome. It's about finding the right spirits, the ones that are your allies. You don't just go into this willy-nilly, you go into it with a very deliberate plan, uh, following tradition and well-worn path, and then exploring outward from there uh, the realm of spirit, which is quite vast, and developing a set of contacts who then become the intermediaries in that world, people that you know you can phone up when you have certain issues. Um, when I want to help my clients connect with their ancestors, this well of wisdom, because each of us are the distillation or the manifestation of a long line of ancestors, an entire sea of ancestors. When I want to help my clients tap into that, I know I have certain spirits on my end that I can go to that will be facilitators, that will help my clients connect to their ancestors, that will help bring their ancestors forth and help them speak and I can help commune on their behalf with those ancestors and then teach them how to do it on their own. Um, so this is a, a very deep part of the work that I do, and it's very strongly tied to my own spirituality. So it's more than a magical practice for me, or even a service that I provide clients, but very deeply tied to my own spirituality and my view of death, the afterlife, spirits in general, my wider cosmology. I hope that was not too abstract and it answered the question. Uh, oh, no, that was fine. Um, and, you know, I'll ask you a classic question. Um, so how can people, if they aren't familiar or they don't do this kind of work, 
how can they know if they are dealing with ancestors? Like if mm-hmm. they say that they feel there's something or someone in their house, mm-hmm. how 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 can you distinguish between, say, a a benevolent mm-hmm. presence or an ancestor versus a not so benevolent presence or entity that we might need to do a little bit more work around dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. You know, as an exorcist, this is something that I've had to deal with quite often. And you know, people who think it's a friendly spirit, but it may end up being less so. And even ancestors are not always helpful or friendly. I mean, at some point in our history, we had a bad ancestor. It's just statistical fact. So not all of them are friendly. I would say that the clearest sign is your own sense. When you walk into your house, when you sense the presence, does it make you feel uneasy or does it make you feel comforted and welcome? You go with that sense. Are we have the natural ability to pick up on these things. We have the ability to sense these things. The second is the ability to commune. Uh, friendly spirits are interested in talking to us um, and introducing themselves to us. They're not parasitic. They want to get to know us. Ancestors will appear in dreams. They will come to you in your sleep. They will give you very clear indications that they're interested in getting to know you and you to get to know them. It's a mutual relationship. And sometimes this manifests in smells, positive smells, the smell of roses, the smell smell of lavender, honey, um, and even tobacco are very positive indications of, of friendly spirit. And then the converse for a spirit that is not so friendly or that may have intentions that are a little bit more dangerous. Um, I would say, for example, one of the clearest giveaways is a spirit has no interest in talking. You may feel their presence, and when you reach out to them, you're shut down immediately. There is no interest in talking. There is no interest in communing. And, of course, the feeling you get. You feel uncomfortable. You feel uneasy. Uncontrollable emotions is another very clear indication. All of a sudden, in your home, you find yourself overwhelmed with a great sadness or great anger or frustration. These are all very clear signs that we may not be dealing with a family spirit. And, of course, bad signs. Right? Keep on rotting me. That's when you know that maybe this is a spirit that you want to remove from your home rather than uh, introduce them and integrate them in your life. And of course, because some people do rush to this assumption, Mm -hmm. that would be after you have made sure there isn't actually some rotting meat in your refrigerator (laughs) or trash can that you perhaps forgot about. Don't Uh, just immediately assume. (laughs) Yes. Practical first. Always answer the practical questions and then look to the spiritual. Whenever you're looking for a sign of anything, is that just a mundane practical thing or something meaningful? Yes. Um, And I think that perhaps if someone is feeling that that's something that is going on for them, that to me is one of the times when you might initially want to go to someone else rather than trying to do something about it yourself right away Mm -hmm. so that you have someone who's a little more experienced in determining what that might be and then also the best way to deal with it. Because especially when you get into the, let's just say, not so nice, entities that might come around it's not something you want to just dabble in or play with because you can you can easily make unintentional mistakes that may not help but may worsen the situation 
Absolutely true. I couldn't agree more. It's always care. It's always best to be careful with situations like that. Um, and the question always, just right back to the question of should I hire a professional or should I do this work myself? So the question is, um, am I out of my debt? And working with spirits is something that really moves more towards the realm of the professional, especially when it comes to something like an exorcism or a removal of a spirit or a laying down of a spirit. Um, it moves more towards the realm of the professional than something you can do yourself. That's not saying you can't learn certain things that can assist with that matter, but it, it does, I would say when it comes to that Venn diagram, it tends to lean a little bit more towards what the professional would do. And just burning a little bit of sage usually is not exactly enough. No, that's, that's <laughs> very true. And, you know, one of the keys of understanding spirit removal is knowing what, how to do it. For example, sage is a very powerful and great cleanser. The sage works as um, an uplifter, right? Sage has certain qualities that energetically, and for example, in the hoodoo tradition, it's about wisdom, bringing peace into a home, wisdom into a home positive spirits. In that case, it's really great, but it may not work, for example, um, if you have a gin in your home. They happen to enjoy the smell of sage, right? So you can sage up the home as much as you'd like, and they're like, well, this is a great scent. I think I'm going to settle in. Um, so knowing what type of spirit you're working with, um, and then knowing how to move them, because it's not a one-all technique. And this is, again, going back to the, the analogy of medicine, right? Not one pill for everything. You have to know which treatment for what um, diagnosis or what condition. And, of course, this may completely contradict what you just said there, but is there a prescription that you might suggest that people could do just in general to, on a, a regular basis, just keep themselves protected or their space protected from unwanted things being able to come in? Uh, you know, I don't think it's contradictory at all because I think there are certain herbs and roots and uh, minerals that work in a much more general fashion or kind of are all encompassing. And I know uh, I happen to love sage, but I've never understood how sage became so popular um, when there are other, uh, you know, ways of doing cleanses. One of the greatest ways or, or keeping a space clean is salt. Um, that really underrated and all-purpose um, magical ally, salt. Salt is really, really good at dealing with any type of spirit, positive or negative, because salt has a very neutral and absorbent quality. You can speak your prayer or intention into salt, and salt will do it. It has that quality. And in Hoodoo, we use salt for a variety of things, driving away bad neighbors, protecting the home, finding thieves, and so on and so forth. Um, salt and a little bit of water kept in the home near the bedside or by the front door is a really good way of ensuring any positive spirits will enter. The other one is Althea. Althea uh, kept in a bowl um, is fantastic for attracting positive spirits and making sure no evil spirits come in. And keeping a live basil plant in the home or in the kitchen is a fantastic way of managing the spiritual forces in the, in the home ensuring positive can enter, ensuring that ancestors can speak, ensuring that the energy is great, but that uh, negative or harmful spirits cannot enter. And the nice thing with those, and this is also something I really appreciate with hoodoo, is those are very 
practical, easy to acquire, easy yeah. to use things. It's not like, you know, this one exotic thing on some mountain in the Far East that you right. have to go to on a certain day of the year, but only if it's the third Friday after the full moon. Yeah. Um, and and hoodoo especially is really good for that, and I think that's because it is an, a kind of an American tradition. So <laughs> the things they're using are going to be found <laughs> much more readily around us. Um, but I think that's important for people to realize is everything around us has its magical attributes, and so it doesn't have to be a person or a thing that is some exotic, how do I ever find it kind of thing, versus it's right there for you. You just have to learn how to use it or what it has to offer you. Absolutely true. And this is really the same with all kind of folk magic practices. They, they tend to be very practical. They tend to be very straightforward and readily accessible. Now, hoodoo has grown over the years and evolved with spiritual supply shops and other materials that are now available, as well as the melting pot that is in the United States. You'll find certain things like lemongrass have made their way into hoodoo that may not have been something that traditionally used. It also comes straight out of the fact that this is a practice of African-American spirituality and it needs things that are readily available. You're not going to be, well, you know, if, if you were living in the deep south in the early 20th century, you're not going to have the ability financially or, or otherwise to, you know, get yourself a thread spun by a virgin, you know, on, <laughs> on the full moon. But you can certainly get access to salt, right, within your local grocery store or local supply shop. And it is more than just um, things like salt and things that are found in, in uh, grocery stores. So there are other aspects of food, but they're, again, always very accessible. Things like nails, right? They have very prominent features. Sewing needles. These are all things that you have that you have access to. Strength, just any old strength. And paper and pencil. And the oldest ways of working writing the prayer down or the petition down on a piece of paper, something that's right in your house. You don't have to buy a quill. You don't have to have some sacred parchment, just paper and pencil. Um, so I wanted to ask a, a kind of a technical question about mm -hmm. geomancy. Sure. Um, so when you say it's about the dots, so is there a, a like a prescribed set of dots and how they're laid out, or is it like automatic writing where you ask the question and then the person starts to just make dots and then they see what it is that the dots have created? Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, it's their actual figures. Uh, they're set. They're 16 geomantic figures and they have Latin names and Arabic names and certain correspondences associated with them in a very similar way to the tarot. The tarot has traditional correspondences or certain traditional images that have emerged. And the same with geomantic. There's 16 of them. And what happens is you create 16 lines of random dots. And you create them either on a piece of paper or you do it on the earth, the ground, and some people use other methods. But you create 16 lines and you make the dots or the line. And you then count them up, each line. And if it's an odd number, you then mark one dot. And if it's an even number, you then mark two dots, and you bracket them off into four. And each of these four lines then creates a figure with four um, lines to them. A head, a neck, a body, and a tail. And it may have one dot, two dots, one dot, one dot, and that's one figure. Um, or it may have two dots, two dots, one dot, two dots. 
that's another figure. And then these are called the mothers, the four mothers. These four mothers are then recombined to create the four daughters, which are then recombined to create the nieces. They are then combined to create the right witness, the left witness, and the judge. And this entire thing is called the shield chart. And so out of four figures, out of four figures that you've created randomly, the sortilege aspect of geomancy, if you will, out of those four figures, you then create a whole chart that can be read. And it will tell you the past, present, the future. It'll give you a very clear yes or no. Those, the figures that you then created can then be put onto the 12 houses of the astrological houses and uh, the chart. And you can read those and it'll tell you very specifics questions about money, questions about love, but they are set and certain combinations will yield certain figures. And there's a beautiful aspect, and this is why I'm so fond of geomancy, um, is that one figure unfolds into the other. It blossoms and it opens up, and so you see this chart unfolding. But there's also an internal logic to the way the chart works. You can see if you've messed up or you can see if there's an error somewhere. So there's a way of the chart kind of fixing and correcting itself. Now, geomancy is part of the wider practices of uh, Africa. And so while there are 16 dots in uh, the Arabic tradition, there's a very similar tradition in West Africa known as the Leguna Isa that has very, very similar figures. And for them, they have even more because those 16 figures then combine make certain combinations with one another, and then those combinations are fixed. Um, they have traditional meaning. So there's a very beautiful aspect to geomancy and the larger family of practices, where there is a set of traditional figures, but they open and blossom into these beautiful, beautiful combinations that reveal destiny and future and fate. It almost strikes me as kind of a combination of tea leaf reading where you have that randomness of seeing what figures have appeared in the tea leaves mm-hmm. and the I Ching. Yes, yes. I Ching is very similar. And there have been some scholars, and Kat and I, both of us who study divination on on almost academic level, have really looked at I Ching and geomancy side by side because we know these traditions are very separate. Um, but we wonder, because there is a lot of similarity if there was some type of cultural contact at some point between merchants, or if these are just, it's just the nature of the binary system itself. But you're absolutely right. I think the comparison with I Ching and even with the randomness of of, uh, team reading is a very accurate way of looking at it. Or perhaps they're similar because their origins all go back to the aliens that originally populated (laughs) our planet. I just put that out there in case the conspiracy theorist needs something to latch on to. Of course, of course. <laughs> Let's be all inclusive. Yes. Um, so I brought up geomancy because I know that I, I think that that's probably one of your favorite or preferred tools to, yeah. to work with. And um, I was hoping that we might take a little bit of a predictive look at what's coming up in the next three months or through the year 
just as I think of it in terms of astrology as kind of these overall astrological mm-hmm. weather patterns that are moving through that all of us are under, but it might affect all of us, you know, individually in a different way. But at least knowing, like if it's raining, that we all go out with an umbrella, that we, we at least know what the overall pattern or weather is. Um, and we're just coming out of a long period of the Pluto-Uranus square, which has been mm-hmm. very challenging for most people <laughs> and the world. Um, and it's it's like we're finally coming out of that tunnel and, and there's light and we're going to start to feel like we can breathe again. This mm-hmm. is my uh, interpretation of it. Um, so I'm wondering if maybe you can give us a sense of what some of the incoming weather patterns are over the next few months so we kind of know how to prepare and what to be ready for and can take best advantage of it knowing how it's going to be. Absolutely, I'm more than happy to. Um, and you're right, geomancy is one of my preferred methods. As even though in, in the United States I've become known as a tarot reader, I think when it comes to myself, if I do readings for myself, uh, astrological readings or geomancy readings, they're really kind of my go-to for it. Um, I'm I have cast a chart, and I can go over. Uh, I won't go over all twelve of the houses. It'll back to whole hour in of itself. But I will go over some of the things that come up very prominently, and I can also give just a little bit of brief um, astrological uh, kind of weather report without going into too much of the details, otherwise it will take forever. Um, but one of the very prominent things that come out in the geomancy reading that I have done for the months to come, and this is from this day, or from today on until the end of the year, um, is that there is going to be, um, when it comes to matters of home, when it comes to matters of uh, the heart. This is where the energies that are at play, and that's what geomancy does. Geomancy looks at the spiritual forces within the earth itself. So it's kind of the mirror of astrology. Whereas astrology looks at the heavens and sees what forces are moving, ebbing and flowing. Geomancy is looking at the forces of the earth. When it comes to the forces of the earth, it's the home and the heart that towards the end of the year specifically, um, and if I were to give a rough time period, I would say probably um, late October up until the end of December. So it's a long window. That period of time, home and heart, is going to be rocked by a little bit of trouble, some complications. Um, this may come from uh, news, unexpected news that is going to arrive in families and it's going to cause things to rock up. It's going to rock the boat. In particular, people should be aware of temptations during this time as well. Um, doing things that will damage the home, the family, and the peaceful equilibrium of what people have going on. Um, uh, this also coincides because it will cover the period of the holidays. So you want to be aware of this because new family members are going to be visiting and if you aren't uh, managing that equilibrium, if you aren't managing that harmony, if you aren't actively avoiding the temptations that are there, you want to, you know, you may introduce a great deal of conflict during the holiday season. So what I would say during this period of time is to be mindful of the interpersonal communications and dynamics within the family. Um, for people who have children, watch their children closely because this will be a time of a lot of emotional strain for children themselves. 
And those children, be they teenagers or younger, will bring that type of strain. This could be conflict that's being dealt with at school or in the child's life. But they will then bring that into the home with a certain attitude. And this can rock things. It may also be tied to the news arriving. You may hear from the principal or you may hear news about the child specifically. So being mindful of the children and the interpersonal family dynamics is going to be very important for that period of time. You see, I also want to give a kind of uh, pull back from that real briefly because Geomancy also speaks to predictions about the world. And while on the micro level, there is a family dynamics going on, later in this year, late summer, early uh, fall, along those same lines, there is going to be interpersonal. There's going to be dynamics shifting on a global scale. So while you have something going on on a microcosmic level, at the macrocosmic level, uh, foreign policy matters is something that people should be very aware of. Um, uh, specifically, matters happening um, at the United Nations, passing resolutions, and shifting the very dynamics. And I'm getting a sense that it could be very strongly tied to questions of the Middle East, um, as well as a move as a move to deal with certain of the conflicts that are ongoing there. So it's just a little fascinating corollary that ha is happening that while there's family stuff going on there, it also matches up quite interestingly on a global matter. Um, there's only one other thing that I will add from an astrological perspective is from July 25th up until uh, mid-August, people should be mindful of communication with their partners. And this is very important. Communication with the partners is going to be difficult, but you will find a level of sensitivity that's going on from July 25th until um, about mid-August that will lead to certain conflicts. And it may be that you and your potential lover, you and your potential partner, you and your partner are having a great deal of miscommunication, inability to reach one another, inability to really convey how you feel, and it may build up into resentment. Now, all of this is like, oh my God, Conjurement Lee came on the show, he gave these dire predictions, but they're not that dire. Life is about dealing with the rockiness and accepting that as much as we'd like smooth sailing, rockiness happens. So if it's all right with you, I would like to offer a couple of prescriptions to address both of these matters, the family dynamics as well as um, the communication uh, that may go on with uh, your partner. Yeah, that would that would be great. Wonderful. Uh, because I do come out of the hoodoo tradition, for us, prescription is very important. So here I am, a reader, and I go, okay, so there's certain issues that are going on, there's certain problems that I see coming up, certain dynamics that need to be addressed. When it comes to the July 25th time period, astrologically, seeing communication break down with your partner, being mindful of that, being mindful of people's feelings and sensitivity, um, and knowing that your partner is going to probably be more sensitive and you yourself are going to be more sensitive during that time period. What I would do is offer up incense, incense that can really change the spiritual flow of the house and the communication. Five-finger grass, mint, and basil, all in dried form, can be mixed together with intention and prayer and focus and burnt on some charcoal. And this will help to ameliorate any of the communication difficulties that will come from uh, interacting with your partner. It will ensure sweetness. The other thing that I would uh, highly recommend is 
taking a little bit of sugar or honey and using that daily during that period in your coffee or your tea or your cooking with intention and prayer to smooth out the communication issues between you and your partner. And this can be done very simply. You take a spoonful of sugar and you pray over it. As this sugar is sweet, may our communication continue to flow sweetly. And you can pour it into your cup of coffee and your partner's cup of coffee. Do that with the incense and it can help to ameliorate the complications ahead. Um, when it comes to the interpersonal dynamics of the family, what I would recommend is, as I mentioned earlier, basil. Keeping a live basil plant in your house. Uh, making sure that it remains alive. Basil is a pretty easy plant uh, to keep around the house. It doesn't need a lot of watering or tending. Keeping that there, it will help with the spiritual force of the house. And the other thing is taking a pot, filling it with water, and then sprinkling cinnamon or putting a whole cinnamon stick into that, uh, and then putting that on boil and letting that steam up. And as it's steaming, turn it off on the heat and let the, the steam kind of fumigate the entire house. Very simple working, very little things that you can do, but they can help to really adjust and change the tone of uh, the entire family life and the dynamics of communication between the person and help avoid these kind of rocky spots that I see coming up. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for offering those. Oh, my pleasure. Um, and it, it strikes me that the two periods that you talked about if thinking for me, thinking of the the astrological aspects mm. of those time periods, I don't think that a lot of these issues that may potentially come up are going to necessarily be new issues mm -hmm. versus past issues that resurface Absolutely. Uh, in some way because we have the July 25th period is Venus retrograde, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which I, I would see as past issues, mm -hmm. especially in relationship realm or love realm. Yeah. Uh, and in Virgo, up. if I'm not mistaken. I haven't looked at the chart recently, but if I'm not mistaken, it's Venus in retrograde in Virgo. Yes, that is correct. Mm -hmm. um, and then it, towards the end of the year, we, we have kind of a revisiting with Uranus retrograde squaring more or less Pluto one, oh, one, once again, and where it creates a cardinal T-square, mm -hmm. plus Mars is going to oppose Uranus. And, yeah. and I think that that's going to bring back things from the previous T-square in April of 2014. So mm -hmm. I think that people could look to see what might what issues might have been going on, especially in the family realm mm -hmm. at that time, that didn't get completely resolved or dealt with. Mm -hmm. And that may be what rears their ugly head during that time. And if we're cognizant of it, it just means we have the opportunity for closure. Absolutely. And that makes perfect sense. Astrology and geomancy do go hand in hand with one another. And I should point out, fascinatingly, I don't think that mentions that in traditional Arabic astrology, we actually don't look at the outer planets. Um, we work with the classical planets, but I, I love that they still, even though the traditional genius doesn't work with the other plans, they match up so well. So thank you for adding that. It doesn't make sense. Um, so I, I wanted to make sure that I ask you how people can um, get in touch with you and find out the kind of services that you offer, because I know that you do a variety of different things that people can take advantage of. Um, and I know, I think the, the thing you like to really do are the life readings for people. So maybe you can just say what that is. What What is a life reading? Um, and then the other things that you offer as well. 
Absolutely. Um, I, I do offer spiritual services, um, and I have been trying to get geomancy people in the Western world to be more interested in getting geomancy readings because geomancy is a predominantly, I can often tell where my clients are from, people in the Western world are generally asking me for tarot readings. But my Arabic and Middle Eastern and North African clients predominantly ask me only geomancy and astrology readings. Um, people can get in contact with me at my website, which is thechondraman.com or chondramanali.com. Either will lead you directly to my website. And I offer a variety of different services I offer. A traditional hoodoo services of doing readings and consultations and offering magical work for people. Um, I specialize in a variety of different areas, returning lost lovers. Um, I am also a money matters. I'm also a justified worker, meaning that I do work for cases that others might find um, a little bit more aggressive. So I will do work for revenge and justice reversal um, because I do feel divine justice is part of my work. It's very important. And I also uh, offer readings. I offer tarot readings and geomancy readings and a variety of different types. And if I am all honest, I love all of them, but I really, really enjoy the life readings. There's a sense of empowerment that comes with them. Um, and life readings is a geomantic reading where people come and they ask um, what they can expect for the year to come and more. And I will go through all 12 of the houses um, or what areas you want me to focus on. I want, I'm interested in money. I'm interested in my career. I'm interested in my love life. And I will tell you what you can expect using geomancy. But because it's such an uplifting and empowering type of reading, it is probably one of my favorite type of services that I offer. But I do offer a wide variety, and I offer much more specific case points. If you're interested in finding out how a court case will go and whether you'll get that job um, or how you can get the attention of the person you're interested in. Those are all services that I provide. And again, just so people know, either the theconjureman.com mm-hmm. or conjuremanaliali.com. Yep, both will send you that. And 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 I I wanted to just mention for like the justice readings that you talked about for <laughs> revenge etc. Mm-hmm. You won't just do them because somebody asks. No, that, that you you do a, a process of making sure it's the right thing to do. Correct. Absolutely. This is called being a justified worker in the Hebrew tradition. And justified is very important. It means justified in the eyes of God. Is your case justified? Now I am known as as a sort of special forces, if you will, of the root work community, in that I am able to take on very difficult cases. I don't do justice work or revenge work just for any case, though. There's a process. You have to first get a consultation. I present the case before my spirit, and they have to say, yes, this case is justified. So let's give some examples. Um, I, someone will come up to me and go, oh, you know, my, my significant other broke up with me. They cheated on me. I want you to destroy their love life for the rest. And I said, that is no. As much as it's Personally, it's wrong that they did that, they cheated me, it's hurtful, difficult. In general, the answer is no. Unless they really wronged you, it isn't, they will have their own lessons in time, but it's not worthy to go into a case of justice and destroying that person, right? It's, it's just not worth, it's far better a form of revenge if you will have a better life and move on and be happy. That to me is very important. So no, that's not a case of revenge. That's part of being a root worker is knowing what the, prescriptions. But let's say you, I have a situation where a person um, has come into my, uh, you know, they had a person who came into their life, pretended to be a lover, 
stole all their money, took their car, uh, abused their child, etc., and so on, and now they're escaping the law. That's when I go, yes, spirits are willing to assist in a situation like that more often than not, because it's something that needs justice. And their justice helps to balance the fact that sometimes we can't get justice in the world we live in, in the social world. And so the spiritual world steps in. But yes, you're right. Being a justified worker does not mean revenge for any other reason. It means revenge for the purpose of justice, of bringing equilibrium and balance back into the world. So, if you've, if you've got a lover that did you wrong, visit com <laughs> or com and get in touch with Conjurman Ali. <laughs> uh, so, uh, as we come to a close of our conversation, there is something that I do at the end of each of these. Um, one is I'm going to ask you a question from a previous guest, and then two, ask you to pose a question for a future guest. Um, neither the person who asked the question I'm going to ask you knew who would get the question, nor will you know who will mm-hmm. be the recipient of your question. So the the question I have to ask you comes from my previous guest, Maria Lectra, mm-hmm. who is a sound healer and works with tones and singing bowls and things. And her question was, what do you consider to be the keys to enlightenment? Ah, simple question. Well, you know. <laughs> I love this idea. Um, that's a fantastic question, a deep one. And I'd have to say that for me, um, I, I'm going to approach this as a very typical earth sign Taurus. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, in that I don't see enlightenment necessarily as very separate from the life that we live. That enlightenment is not a unique state that one transcends to, but is part of our lived experience. And I would say the keys to enlightenment is living an upright life full of character and making and making sure you leave a positive legacy for the world to come. And that is the key to enlightenment. And in my opinion, becoming one of the revered elders. That you live a life that is upright, full of character, that you are true to yourself, true to who you are, and you leave behind a legacy that is impactful and meaningful, that will live on after you, of helping people, of being a service, of being of practical service to people, being of guidance, so that when you do die and pass on, your legacy lives on, and you as a spirit become a wise ancestor to come back and back. And I would say that's the key to enlightenment, a high standard to uphold, but I think an element of practicality there as well. Excellent response. Thank you. So what question would you like to pose for a future guest? You know, I have been thinking about this, and hopefully this works out for your next guest, because I don't know who they are. Um, But the question I would ask is, in the Western spiritual world, we tend to view matters of spirituality and matters of magic, um, or practical spirituality, whichever we want to phrase it, not everyone's comfortable with that term, as very separate from one another. And we have the dichotomy of the magus, or the mage, and the magician, versus the mystic. How can we reassess this paradigm? How can we look at spirituality and magic in a more holistic fashion, I think would be my question. All right. Well, I'm glad you kept the question simple like the other one was asked of you. (laughs) I try. So this is going to bring us to the close of our conversation, and I want to extend a thousand gratitudes to you for being willing to join me here today and take some time to 
share especially information about some uh, traditions and practices that aren't necessarily as well known by people in the Western world. So thank you very much for doing this today. Thank you for having me on. It was my pleasure and honor, and it was great uh, talking to you. And again, that was Kanjaman Ali, and you can find out information about him and the services he provides by visiting thekanjaman.com or kanjamanali.com. So Kanjaman Ali, thank you very much. Thank you. And stay tuned. Coming up next is your chance to receive a reading live on the air with me. And if you would like to get into the queue for that, you can Skype in from the show page or you can call 646-716-5510 in order to get into the queue. So stay tuned, get into the queue if you would like a reading, and we'll be right back. with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. And welcome back. Thank you so much to Conjurman Ali for having been here today and sharing so much interesting for me, especially insight into some of the approaches and practices from some other cultures and parts of the world that in some ways are similar to what we may know, but in other ways may be very different. And I find it always enlightening to find out about those as well as oftentimes interesting to research them more and perhaps even give them a try uh, to see how they feel and how they work compared to what we might be used to doing. So thank you very much to Conjurman Ali for that. And this is the portion of the show where people have a chance to call in and receive a reading uh, live on the air. Uh, today there aren't anyone, uh, there isn't anyone waiting in the queue. Uh, so what I've decided to do is go ahead and just pull a card for everyone. And I was especially focusing on the the idea of uh, in the the next month or couple of months. Um, we have, in some ways, we have a little bit of breathing room. From an astrological standpoint, we just finished a very difficult period, the Pluto-Uranus square, which has come to a close finally. Um, I mean, there's still some little uh, leftover uh, residue to deal with over the next few months, but in general, the major cycle has kind of reached its conclusion. 
And this is the sense that we're coming out of a tunnel and finally out into the light. And the next couple of months offer us both a little bit of breathing room where we get to catch our breath, as well as a chance to start adjusting to all of the shifts and the changes and the challenges that we have been going through over the past couple of years so we can start to make some sense of them and figure out how to best move forward, uh, moving away from the past so that we are done with it and starting to really focus towards the future on what we're going to start creating, where we go from here, and how we're going to start doing things rather than simply trying to just pick up the pieces or recreate or recapture the past, which is really not what this was about and would not end up being successful. So I pulled a card to say, how can we best move out of this tunnel as we move into the light and begin that adjustment phase? You know, think of coming out of the dark into the light. Initially, we squint really hard uh, because the light can hurt, but then gradually we start to adjust and open our eyes and we get used to what the, the landscape now looks like and where we're now at. And so I decided to use uh, the, an oracle called the Isis Oracle by Alana Fairchild. I love this oracle. And so I pulled a card to say, what do we need to know? And how can we best move through this next couple of months of uh, adjustment and transition from the tunnel, tunnel from the dark into the light into the next phase? And the card that came up is called Divine Guardian, Protection of the Winged Mother. And this is such a beautiful card because it reminds us that no matter how bad things have been or what we may have been going through and how we may be trepidatious or or nervous about facing or, or thinking about the future and how to move forward, we are being protected. There is a sense of other forces that are looking out for our highest and best interest. So therefore, we can take a breath, know that that's there, and then start tapping into that to both be with us as we make decisions and take steps, as well as perhaps helping us a little bit to adjust uh, a little more easily and and uh, be a, a bit more ready and feel more capable and courageous to take the necessary steps and start creating the new things that we see possible for coming into being. Um, and this is a time where we've come out of a period, especially where we may have really seen a lot of external things change in our world or shift in some way, or we've gone through some transitions that have really impacted our external circumstances. And what we are now at a point of is saying, okay, now, who am I internally and how do I bring that into alignment with? the changes, the shifts, and the transitions that have happened externally. I can Things outside of me are no longer the same. Therefore, I can no longer be the same person I was, approach things the same way, and what do I need to do, and how can I go through the process of bringing my internal self into alignment with how the external has shifted and changed. And this is also a card that reminds us that regardless of whether we are faced with opportunity or crisis of some sort, that we want to trust the trust the risks and the unexpected directions that our intuition may be indicating is the right thing or the right direction for us to go. 
it's it's a, a card that reminds us that if we trust that intuition, if we take the steps in that direction that is being indicated to us or that is opening up for us, that we will be safely guided and protected along that path. There will be things there that will allow us to be able to successfully navigate and move down that path. So let's not allow fear to get in the way. Let's not allow a lack of self-confidence to get in the way. Let's not allow a sense of uh, lacking in our own self-acceptance or the acceptance of how things are to get in the way of seeing how things can be and what we can actually do. Um, it's, It's a card that is reminding us that life is not fixed and sometimes it is not clear. But if we can simply accept that, we can say that no matter what, all is well, therefore I will be okay. It's when we fight against that, when we push back, when we resist, when we try to not allow change to happen, or we don't trust what the change is opening up for us, that we generate a sense within ourselves which then creates a reality where it feels as if everything is not well and that is not the case so i with this deck there's always an incantation or a mantra that comes with each of the cards and i wanted to leave you with that and if you wanted to use this perhaps to charge a talisman or something that you are going to try out based on what we heard from kanjaman ali and some of the things that he does and suggested Uh, Or if it's just something you would like to say to yourself whenever you're feeling this way or every morning when you get up or every evening at the end of the day or whenever you would like to say it, I wanted to leave you with this because I think it's very powerful and can also be very helpful and very useful. So the incantation says, Winged Mother, Guardian of Light, surround me with your protective might. Only love and light enter this field or the scarab sword you shall yield, driving away darkness with endless light, bringing peace to every day and to every night. So I encourage you to use that mantra and trust that you are being protected, everything is okay, and the future is waiting, and we now have the opportunity to start moving towards it more fully, more readily, more courageously, if we just open our eyes and adjust to what has changed, accept that, and start stepping forward. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next month. This has been Revolution with High C on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Thank you for joining us. Revolution with host Ticey Lutmers, brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with C. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist, with Ticey Lutmers and Charlie Harrington, Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.